Y'all ready to get into God's prophetic word? Hey, can I tell you something that's uh, awesome about uh, the prophetic word? I know sometimes people, they say, you know, the, the one third of the Bible is God's prophetic word. It's prophecy. I disagree with that. The whole thing is prophecy. The whole Bible, the narrative portions, the prophets. Jesus was a prof uh, the, the fulfillment of prophecies from the Old Testament and, as we're going to see in a moment, casting prophecy forward. The Apostle Paul, when he was writing, do you know the Apostle Paul was not just thinking about how you should live your life as a believer today. Of course he writes about that. But do you know why he talks about those things? Because Jesus is coming back. Do you know that's why Paul writes? Everything is couched within the confines of Jesus's return. And that's why I want to talk about that tonight, because I think it's important. Look, when we get on high alert like this, when things start to happen around the world, and especially when we see what's happening in Ukraine with Russia right now, we, the world goes on high alert. And everybody's spiritual compass starts to, you know, maneuver itself back to the scriptures because of uncertainty. You know, it's amazing to me that in our modern era still, that even the lost person who doesn't read the scriptures know that when things aren't going right, I need to maybe recalibrate my life back to what God's word says. Because you know what? People are searching in this time for hope. And you know what? I want you to, when you're reading the news, I watch the news too. Look at, I got the news. My wife goes, can you just turn the news off for a moment and let's watch something funny together? I'm like, no, I can't. The news is on, you know. That's me. I'm a news junkie. I've always been a news junkie. News talk, radio, all of it. I like to stay informed. I like to know what's going on. But can I tell you something? Our life shouldn't be as believers just rooted in the details of all the things uh, that we're going to be talking about today. They should be rooted in knowing Jesus is coming back because we have a hope that the world doesn't. We have a hope that the world doesn't. Where's your hope? Is your hope in Fox News? I hope not. Is your hope in, in the politicians that are moving and shaking the decisions and policies of today's culture? I certainly hope not. I don't care if they're your politician or not your politician. Remember where to place your hope because that's everything that the writers of the scriptures as God was leading them were driving us to. That's why prophecy is important because it gives us hope when we don't know what's going on. So listen, why don't you really quick, we're going to jump around a couple places. And then I said to Pastor Lemming, should we do a Q&A? He said, you, you can if you want to. So if you're nice to me, all right, and you're kind, maybe we'll do a Q&A. I want to just really quickly talk about um, Ukraine. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel, chapter 37, 38, and 39. We're not going to go through all those things, but I just want to briefly touch on this. A lot of people are asking the question as to whether or not this issue with Russia and Ukraine are a part of prophecy. And again, I'm going to say yes, because everything that's happening uh, is a part of prophecy. Everything that uh, that has happened from the moment Jesus ascended into heaven. We are living, everybody, in the last days. Do you know that? We've been living in the last days for 2,000 years. That's why we, I believe in the pre-trib rapture that at any moment, at any moment, Jesus could return. It's an imminent return. 
And so, yes, we are living in the last days. Yes, these things do matter. And yes, you know, God does gives, give us some understanding of the region uh, 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 that involves Russia and the region that does involve Ukraine. But it, you have to remember what it's filtered through. It's not just, oh, what's going on in Ukraine? Ukraine prophecy. No, no, no. It's filtered through what's going on with Israel in the Bible. Not what's going on just politically around the world. That's not, you have, to be, you have to be mindful because when God writes in Ezekiel 37, 38, and 39, it's through the lens of what Israel sees, not just what, what the news tells you. And so Ezekiel chapter 37, I'm not going to uh, mention this, but if you just want to take note, Ezekiel 37 is a major portion in Scripture when it talks about Israel because it's Israel's resurrection, the dry bones do you remember, did you ever read that passage about the dry bones? Ezekiel is brought into a valley where he sees dry bones and they are dry and they are dead. The bones are so dry. He's climbing over bones and bones. It's a very depressing scene. And God says, hey, Ezekiel, can these bones live? And what does Ezekiel say? You know, the very brilliant man. Uh, God, listen, from all human perspectives, these bones are as dead as they possibly can be. But if you think they can live, you let me know, okay? Because you're God, I'm not. Great answer, Ezekiel, spot on. And then God tells him to prophesy to the bones and the bones will rise, resurrect, and they do. And they take on, all of a sudden the bones come together, bone to bone, you know, marrow, all of it begins to form. And all of a sudden you see this army of people that were once the bones, are now standing there lifeless, waiting. And God says, this is the nation of Israel. I'm going to take their dry bones, the death of Israel, what seemed like the death of Israel, what seemed like the death of the Jewish people. I'm going to take them and resurrect them and bring them back to life. And there's a lot of people, including myself, that believe this did ha it's happening it's happening right now as we speak. You're living in one of the most unique times in church history, everybody. There is an Israel. For 2,000 years, there was no Israel. For 2,000 years, since about 135 AD, there has been no Israel. The Jewish people have been kicked out of the land and they've been dispersed throughout the land. And they've been scattered throughout the world. And then God says, these bones will rise. And there have been Jewish people that have been, that lived for thousands of years that prayed for the day that the bones would rise and that Israel would become a nation again. And then in 1948, it happened. I mean, it wasn't just a political movement. It was a biblical movement when Israel became a nation again. There was a, uh, you should look him up, a great guy. And this is going to be bad. See, I'm not going to get anywhere. Where I want to be, I'm not going to get tonight. I already know it. There was a Christian man, an Anglican actually, his name was uh, Reverend William Heckler. Reverend William Heckler, look him up. Reverend William Heckler, an Anglican man, a, a godly man. He was a chaplain in Vienna and he was from the United Kingdom. And he was waiting, and this is probably in the late uh, 1800s, 1890 or so. He was waiting for the resurrection of, the, of, of Israel and that the Jewish people would go back to their ancient homeland. And he wrote books about this. And he's the one who actually partnered. 
he met a man named Theodore Herzl. You might have never met, known that name before, but Theodore Herzl was a Jewish, a secular Jewish man. So you had a secular Jewish man and you had a, a biblical Christian who was look, searching the scriptures for what God was going to do. And the two of them met one another because over here, the, the secular Jewish man, Theodore Herzl, wanted to make a place, a safe place for Jewish people to go. And Israel was on his mind. And he formed what was called the First Zionist Congress. It's actually really, it's a little freaky because 50 years before Israel became a state, Theodore Herzl gathered men, uh, uh, Jewish people, uh, to form this Congress from all over the world that said, we need a safe place for Jewish people to live. They're persecuted. And they all got together. And even some Christian men came. And what's fascinating is that after that first Zionist Congress, Theodore Herzl said, in 50 years, there will be a Jewish state. And in almost 50 years to the month, in 1948, Israel became a nation. And Theodore Herzl never saw it happen. He died around 1904 or so. But he formed the nucleus to begin a political movement for the Jewish people to return to an ancient homeland. The, all the while, his friend over here, William Heckler, the Christian, would look at him and go, Theodore, don't lose sight. You're on a biblical mission, buddy. This is biblical. And he writes how much he loved William Heckler, the Christian who impacted his life. In fact, Theodore Herzl, he is so famous in Israel. Every street, in, in every town has a street called Herzl in it. There is a town that is actually a very wealthy town on the Mediterranean coast called Herzliya. And if you ever look at a Knesset meeting, which is their parliament, you'll see a big face of Theodore Herzl looking down on all the politicians to remind him of the guy who started the movement for the Jewish people to return home. He is a powerhouse. Where all of the Jewish people, who all the presidents, all the prime ministers are buried, where all of the uh, veterans are buried, their, their Arlington Cemetery in Israel is called Mount Herzl. Herzl is a key, key, key figure in the Jewish people coming back to the Jewish state. And I'll tell you something, you know who was there on his deathbed one day before he died? William Heckler, ministering to him, reminding him, you're on a biblical mission. This isn't just politics. God is moving. And so when, look at, see, I told you I was going to get off. This is bad. This is bad, people. So all of these movements are happening. Ezekiel 37, the dry bones come back to life. It happened. And it is happening as Friends of Israel workers are right now working to get Jewish people out of Ukraine, I'll tell you where a lot of them are going, to Israel. They're making Aliyah. People are flocking to Israel because it's the safest place for Jewish people to be. I mentioned this earlier. If you were at the first service, I didn't get a chance to say this. But 60% of hate crimes in America, 60%, that's more than half, are committed toward Jewish people in the United States. Do you know, Jewish people, they move wherever they can find safe places to live. So they're returning home to a Jewish state. So Ezekiel 36, the Jewish state comes, there is an Israel that is reformed. That's when Ezekiel 38 and 39 kick in. 
and there's this, this battle that appears. And you can turn there, actually. Ezekiel chapter 38, look what it says. We'll just start and we'll look at this quickly. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, set your face against Gog, the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal. Prophesy against him and say, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I am against you, Gog, chief prince of uh, Meshech and Tubal. I will turn you around and put hooks in your jaws and bring you out with your whole army, your horses, your horsemen, fully armed, a great horde with large and small shields, all of them brandishing their swords, Persia, Cush, Put will be with them. All the shields and helmets, also Gomer with all of its troops, and Beth Togomar uh, from the far north with all of, the, all of its troops. The many nations with you. Get ready. Be prepared. You and all the hordes gathered about you and take command of them. After many days, you will be called to arms. And in the future years, you will invade a land that has been recovered from war whose people are gathered from many nations to the mountains of Israel. See, now they're gathered back, they're coming back, which has long been desolate. They had been brought out of the nations after 2,000 years. It's not in, that's not, it doesn't say that, but that's the idea. Out of the nations, they're coming back. And now all of them live in safety. You and all your troops and many nations with you will go up advancing like a storm. You will be like a cloud covering the land. This is what the sovereign Lord says. On that day, thoughts will come into your mind, Gog, and your mind, uh, you will devise, uh, devise an easel, ev evil scheme. scheme. You will say, I will invade the land of unwalled villages and attack a peaceful and unsuspecting people, all of them living without walls and without gates and bars. Uh, and it goes on and on. This is a prophecy, a future prophecy of a battle that they often call the Battle of Gog of Magog. And the question is, when does that battle take place? And remember, it's looking through the lens of Israel. And so if you had a map, if you're standing in Israel, which is right on the very far western coast of the Mediterranean, and you look north, okay, you're going to run right into Russia. And a lot of people believe Gog is an area of Magog, is an area of Russia, far north, as far as you can go, as the people known, knew at that time. And so they look at that area and they go, that's Russia. Some texts, some of your translations might actually have the word Rush in there or Rus or, or something of that nature. That is actually, that means chief or, or, uh, or head. It doesn't mean, a lot of people like to translate that as Russia. It's not Russia. Rosh is not Russia. It means head, chief priest, or chief prince. So there's, there's some confusion about what's going on. But the idea is that a lot of the names of those people surround Russia, the area of Ukraine, Turkey, uh, Iran, down into Ethiopia, and all of these surrounding areas. So what's going on? Israel is looking around. It's in safety now. Did you hear it's a... The cities are unwalled. They have safety. There's peace. There's security. And all of a sudden, God is the one. Remember, he says, I'm going to put a hook in your jaw. Do you know what that's the reference to? If you were with me this morning and we went through Jonah and we talked about how evil the Ninevites were, evil, evil, evil people. Remember, I told you that's the reason Jonah did not want to go because of God. he knew God's compassion towards them. I told you how disgusting the things that they did to the Jewish people and to all nations around them. Well, one of the things they used to do to humiliate people was to drag them out of their country. The Assyrians would put hooks in people's jaws and drag them on their horses to other lands. Could you imagine getting a hook shoved into your jaw and then you're carried away like this? And that's, what you, that's how they would humiliate you in front of everybody. 
I told you these were evil, evil people. God turns it on them and says, I'm going to put a hook in you. I'm going to put a hook in all these nations and I'm going to drag you into this battle because God's going to humiliate them. And that's so important to see. It's a prophetic battle. The question is, are we in this battle? Is this forming a stage? There are some interesting things to think about. First, Israel is back in the land. The next thing is this. Remember, this right now isn't a battle between Israel and Russia. This is a battle between Ukraine and Russia. So we're talking about an internal situation. We're not talking about anything that has to do with Israel. But there are some interesting alliances that are taking place. You have Russia, who just so happens to have a partnership uh, and a relationship with Iran, Persia. That's kind of interesting. There are other nations that are not a part of that, that, that relationship. Uh, Turkey definitely has an interesting relationship with Iran and, and, with, and, with, um, and with Russia. They always kind of try to ride the middle line. They don't, they don't try to play their cards in either direction because of the, situ the position of where they are, Turkey. But right now we definitely see an alliance between Iran and we see an alliance with, uh, with uh, Russia. And you know what's interesting, I don't know if you read it or not, but even today or last night, uh, Iran sent rockets into Iraq. Uh, I think they're feeling like, oh man, if Putin can just advance into Ukraine, well, we can begin to advance and do what we want to do as well. So they're feeling some power to be able to make to, to this alliance that's going on. They're feeling power to be able to make their, 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 their uh, presence known in the Middle East. And we already know that Iran is not a fan of Israel. That one you don't have to read the news about at all. You should, I mean, that's on Twitter, okay? Twitter lets, Twitter lets the Ayatollah talk about death to Israel, okay? And that, that's fine. That's not a problem. But there's a unique alliance that's there. So yes, yeah, something to definitely watch. The other interesting thing is this, if you, if you keep up with the news. There's only one country right now that is playing the mediator between Russia and Ukraine. Do you know who that is? It's Israel. Prime Minister Bennett um, is uh, the new, he's the one who took uh, over as prime minister after, you probably know Benjamin Netanyahu. Prime Minister Bennett, he's the new, uh, he's been around for maybe a year or so as the Prime Minister of Israel. Very religious man. He's the first keeper-wearing Prime Minister of Israel. That means he's religious, a, a religious Jewish man. He is trying to ride the line, everybody, of playing a role as mediator because Israel actually does have a very good relationship with Russia, has had a very good relationship with Russia, and a very good relationship with Ukraine. And the reason why is because, number one, I don't know if you know this or not, but Israel has a massive Russian population, massive. They all came flooding into Israel um, after independence um, and, and all the way through to the 80s and 90s. There's a huge Russian population. One of the ministries that I had, I, I loved, we, we work at a hospital. We do a volunteer work at a hospital. And uh, I've met so many Russian Jewish people that are just fantastic people. And I said to them, you're going to teach me Hebrew and Russian and I'll teach you English. And that was our relationship. And we were fr like friends forever. That was our big thing. He could speak three languages. I was the fool that could only speak one. Okay, so, uh, but th there is a huge Russian population in Israel. So, of course, there's that unique connection because a lot of times they have family still. A lot of those Russians still have family in Russia. 
And so you'll see a lot of Russian Jewish people uh, that immigrated to Israel. So of course, Israel has a unique relationship with Russia right now, but they also have a unique relationship because there's a lot of Jewish people from Ukraine and there's a lot of Jewish people that live in Israel that are from Ukraine. So there's that relationship. So Bennett, who is the prime minister of this tiny country, is the only one right now outside of Macron in France who is trying diligently to make a relation, to, to, to solve the problem of the Russia-Ukraine uh, um, uh, war that's going on. So I, we don't know, but it's amazing that the one country that's kind of shoehorned itself in there is Israel. That could play out interestingly because Israel has not made a definite statement about Russia yet. And there's a reason for that. It's because Bennett is trying to play mediator. By trying to, he can't say, Putin's a fool, look what he's doing. Putin won't talk to him. And he's trying to talk to Zelensky at the same time. And Zelensky, who's the president of Ukraine, is actually scheduled at some point to speak to the Israeli parliament coming up soon through Zoom. So somehow Israel, tiny little Israel, has shoehorned its way into this global issue. We'll have to wait. To, I can't. That's not people. That's not in the Bible. OK, I, I can't. I can't. Uh, I don't want to give you false information or anything. But it's interesting. Of all the countries to play mediator, Israel is the one. And the world wants Israel to do it because of that unique relationship that they have. If you notice, Bennett has not been condemned by anybody yet for trying to create peace between or to solve the problem, bring some ceasefire to the situation. So anyway, uh, is Ukraine a part of prophecy? Well, if, yes, God is moving all nations according to his plans. But is it Gog of Magog from Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39? It could be, we'll have to wait, you have to have me come back, okay? We'll see, we gotta wait for time to go on, okay? To see what's gonna happen. But there's some things I want you to see here. Come down with me um, into verse uh, 14 of 38. Why do these things take place? This is why prophecy is important. Look what it says. Therefore, son of man, prophesy and say to Gog, this is what the sovereign Lord says. In that day when my people Israel are living in safety, they will not take notice of it. You will come, uh, you, you will come from your place in the far north and, you, and many nations with you, all of them riding on horses, a great horde, a mighty army. You will advance against my people Israel like a cloud that covers the land. In days to come, Gog, I will bring you against my land so that the nations, listen to this, the nations may know me when I proved holy through you before their eyes. You know what's amazing about all this? It's not an accident. God is orchestrating it. Notice it's not just some happenstance that all these nations, and I don't believe that Ezekiel saw Russia I don't believe that Ezekiel saw Ukraine. I don't believe that Ezekiel saw Ethiopia. I think he was thinking about the nations that he knew, the nations that were on his newspaper, not ours. But the locations are the same. But I want you to notice it's God who drives them down. It's God who's making it happen. Why? Well, let's not just let's not get in the weeds. Why? Well, it says it right here. I will bring you against my land so that the nations may know me when I proved holy through you before 
their eyes. I'm going to show the world that even though all of these massive nations, Russia, uh, uh, the, the area of the north, uh, Ethiopia, um, uh, 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 Turkey, Iran, Iran, Persia, all these nations that are surrounding, when they all come down, the human eye will look and say, Israel is done. It's impossible. Israel is the size of New Jersey. There's 9 million people there. They don't stand a chance. And look what God says. I am going to prove myself. The nations will know me. You know what he's trying to say? Israel will defeat them because I'm going to prove myself holy in their sight. And the nations are going to go, I don't know what's going on down there. Because God fights their battles. Just as God fights your battles, he's going to fight the battle. I want to show you one more thing. It was mentioned earlier from Pastor Lemming, and I'm glad that he brought it up. Go to Matthew chapter 24. Because you know what? This isn't the first time, everybody, and this isn't the last time that there will be a war. I promise you, this is not the first time or the last time. When you all come to Israel with me, and you, if you want to come, you could just go to foi.org, foi.org, like friendsofisrael.org, and there we have all of our tours planned out for the next three years, okay? So you can go there and look, and you can get yourself prepped uh, if you'd like to come on a fantastic tour. But one of the areas that we take you to is a place called Har Megiddo, which when the writer of, of, uh, of the book of Revelation smooths it out, because Har Megiddo is Hebrew, Har is mountain, Megiddo is the name of the city. When we go to Har Megiddo, John writes it in Greek, and Greek always messes up Hebrew because they're two different languages, and it's like me trying to speak uh, Arabic. It's not going to happen. I mess it up, okay? D Greek messes up Hebrew. So when they say Har Megiddo, that's John saying Armageddon. And we're going to go to, you can go to our, the area of Armageddon, the battle. And what you'll find there is that there have been battles being fought at Har Megiddo for thousands of years. There is this very, it's called Tel Megiddo. A Tel is an interesting thing. It's a fake mountain. It actually looks like a, a trash heap or, or a, a garbage uh, you know, when, where they put all the garbage and it stacks up and it starts looking like a fake mountain. It looks like that. And it's like that for a reason, because in the ancient day, when, when an army would come in and defeat uh, another uh, a, a civilization, they'd go in and they would, they would knock down the buildings, burn everything, they would kill people, and then they would knock all the buildings down, set it on fire, and then they, instead of clearing the rubble like we do and building again on foundation, they would just build on top of that. And then the next group would come in, pillage, Plunder, burn everything, build on top. Pillage, plunder, burn everything, build on top. And next thing you know, this little tiny, this flat ground begins to grow like this and grow and grow and grow. Tell Megiddo, Harmageddon, there are 26 layers of civilization in one spot. So it's no coincidence that John is looking there and saying, in this place where battles have been fought, for thousands of years. It was, there was a battle there that goes back to World War I. They fought one at Megiddo. That just as, long, as many times as there's been, there will be an ultimate battle that takes place here. 
We are going, this isn't the last war. There will be more. And Jesus talks about this. Look at Matthew chapter 24, verse four. Jesus answered, watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, claiming that I'm the Messiah and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. People, take a deep breath. Jesus is telling you, take a deep breath. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nations will rise against nations and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All of these things are the beginnings of birth pains. What is Jesus talking about here? Well, he's standing on the Mount of Olives, and I can take you there. And he's looking out over Jerusalem, and he starts to talk to the disciples about the things to come. And he says, you're going to hear about wars and rumors of wars, kingdoms rising against kingdom, nation against nation. You know what he's doing? He's going back to the book of Daniel. Because the book of Daniel is all about these kingdoms that get built up. Do you remember, did you ever hear, read about in Daniel chapter uh, 2? We can't read the whole thing. But Nebuchadnezzar has a vision of a statue that has many different layers of different types of metal. And he's having a hard time interpreting this dream. And Daniel interprets it for him. And in this dream that, that Nebuchadnezzar has, a rock comes out of nowhere that's not made with, with human hands. A rock comes down and destroys that huge statue of Nebuchadnezzar, which means he destroys all the kingdoms of the earth. And the image is this, is that for since the days of Babylon, going back thousands of years, kingdom has risen against kingdom. He looked at Nebuchadnezzar and says, you're going to have a great kingdom. You're the king of everything right now, Nebuchadnezzar, but you're going to die. And guess what? Your kingdom is going to disappear one day and there will be another kingdom. Persia, and then another kingdom. Greece, and then another kingdom. Rome. But you know what? There's a rock that's coming that's not hewn with human hands that will burst out and blow up that statue. And it will become a mountain. And he gives this image that there is a greater kingdom coming. That's why when Jesus says kingdom rising against kingdom happens all the time. Nation against nation, it's going to happen. But there is a kingdom that's coming. Listen to this. Oh, I get excited about this. People, come on. Daniel chapter 7. This is what I wanted to talk about the whole time. Who is here this morning? Anybody? All right, good. Do you remember I told you um, this morning that uh, Moses can only see the smallest part of God's back? He could only see this little part, and the guy came down radiating. This little tiny part right here. You know, shining bright how to put a veil over his head. I want to sh show you somebody who sees God's punam, his face. Daniel chapter 7. Nation will rise against nation. That's exactly what Daniel 7 is talking about. Kingdom against kingdom. Wars will happen. These people fought one another over and over and over and over again. They fought and warred with one another these nations, these kingdoms. And Jesus is saying, ah, don't think it's the end yet. Take comfort. This is just the beginning. The end is not here yet. 
Because see, when Jesus thinks about the end, he's thinking about this moment. He's thinking about what's about to happen. And Daniel has this vision. And look what it says here in uh, Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. And in my night vision, (coughs) excuse me, I looked. And there before me was one like a son of man. Now, we got to smooth that out because Hebrew is a funky language. You spit on each other. It's hard, okay? And then they say funny idioms. Son of man. Have you ever said son of man? No. But you're all son of man. Son of man in Hebrew is ben adam, which just means human. Maybe you heard it when he was talking to Ezekiel. Remember, he said son of man. Well, he's saying, you human, Ezekiel, <coughs> call on Gog and Magog, prophesy, you human. Well, what, look what happens here. Daniel sees one like a son of man. That means the vision he sees, he's looking and he's going, that looks like a human right there. That's a human in my vision. Okay, what's this human doing? Look, this human is coming with the clouds of heaven. Excuse me? Have you ever seen a human come on clouds? I... I haven't. (coughs) A human riding on, surfing on clouds. So now all of a sudden, Daniel's vision goes from just one that looks like a human, but now it's a human that's doing divine things. And look what happens. Watch this, because this is what really shocks Daniel. He approached the ancient of days. He approached God the Father. Moses, I'm going to put you in the cleft of the rock and then I'm going to put my hand in front of you and you're going to catch that moment right there because if I show you this, you will be consumed by my holiness. You won't be able to live a moment to tell what just happened. You will be consumed because of my holiness. You just got to read, uh, go forward to Leviticus chapter 10 of the account of Nadab and Abihu who did the wrong thing in God's presence and God's holiness consumed them. So here is this human being that's doing the opposite of Moses. He's walking right up to the ancient of days. Daniel makes it a point to talk about the fact that this guy, he is not like any other human. He's coming on clouds and he's walking right up to God. Who is this guy? He was led into his presence. And listen to this. He was given authority, glory, Sovereign power. Listen to this. Remember, kingdoms rise against kingdoms, nation against nations. All nations, all peoples of every language worshipped him. Not just Israel. Everybody. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Kingdoms destroy kingdoms. Nations destroy nations. We're watching it happen on the news right now. And here in Daniel chapter 7, the son of man, someone that looks like a human, is walking right up to God. He is not consumed by his holiness. He's coming on the clouds of heaven. And then God gives him dominion, glory, power, authority to rule over every nation, every tribe, every person, and every tongue. Sound familiar? Now, I want you to listen to this because Jesus 
loves this title, Son of Man. Every time you go back to the Gospels and read them for your devotions, look out for the Son of Man. Maybe you've heard this one. Jesus replies, foxes have dens, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. You ever hear that before? Now couch this just right. Who is the Son of Man? He's the one who can walk right up to God and look at him in his face. And God gives him dominion and authority and power and honor and glory to rule over every nation, every tribe, every person. And this son of man does not have a place to lay his head. Go figure. How about this one? Uh, But I want you to know, Matthew 9, 6, that the son of man has authority to, on earth. Why? Because God's given him the authority to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, get up, take your mat, and go home. The son of man. And that's when the Jewish people ripped their clothes because they were challenging Jesus. Who do you think you are just forgiving people's sins? Who do you think you are? Remember Jesus says, Which is harder, to forgive someone's sins or to heal them? And here Jesus, it uses just perfectly the Son of Man. Why? Because in your mind, you should be going to Daniel 7 and remembering dominion, power, authority. God gave it to him. God gave it to the Son of Man. He's the King of kings. And yet he has no place to lay his head. Listen to this. Um, The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say he is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by her deeds, and it goes on. But here is the son of man, the king of kings, the one to whom all glory and dominion and power have have been given, and he's eating with sinners. There are, look at, I have them all out. I I can't go through all of them. All of these are son of man, just from Matthew. Look at, he lets them know the son of man is going to be delivered. Wait, the son of man is delivered? Think about the disciples. You're the son of man. How can you be delivered? You can't be delivered. You're the king of kings. You're the one that walked into God's presence. You can't do that. You can't die. No, the son of man will be delivered into the hands of the authorities. Look, he he mentions it several times when it comes to his death. The son of man, Matthew 17, 11, is going to be delivered into the hands of men. And it goes on and on. Listen to this when it talks about prophecy. I wanted you to hear this. This is why we uh, opened with Matthew 24, 4. When you get down to Matthew 24, 30, and you're talking about the fact that Jesus is coming again, he says, there will appear a sign. This is how you know it's the end. It's the end. It's not the wars that are happening today. Those are just the signs of things that are coming. It's the birth pains of what's ultimately coming. But listen to what Matthew 24, 30 says. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the earth to the other. Man, that's big. But can I tell you the one that I love? And I hope that you go home with this tonight. And I hope it recalibrates who you 
picture Jesus to be. Because this one gets me every single time. It's the most humbling when you think about God's prophetic word. It's the most humbling to, to know who our God is. We talked about knowing God from Exodus 34, 6 and 7. Well, you're about to see that lived out in this one verse here. And you've probably heard it before, but maybe it will change when, when you begin to think about who the Son of Man is. Jesus isn't just using that phrase flippantly. He's using that phrase to give context. The Son of Man was the one who could walk into the face of God and God bestows on him all authority under heaven to rule earth. He's the King of Kings. And Matthew 20, verse 28 says this, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for the many. That's prophecy. Think about that. Power, authority, glory, honor given to him by God to rule everything on earth according to God's will. And Jesus comes and looks at the disciples and says, the son of man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life. That's the king you serve. That's the king I serve. When you look at Putin, do you know what I see? A braggadocious, arrogant fool who only cares about himself. When you think about politicians, it's the same way. The Antichrist will be no different. Proud, prideful, arrogant, uh, all of the different synonyms that you could use that are associated with pride and foolishness and only caring about yourself, selfishness. And here is our king, the son of man, who didn't come to be served. The disciples aren't washing his feet. He's washing their feet. That's the son of man. That's your king. And when he leaves, he doesn't leave with this, uh, uh, hey, apostles, you do what you want. You rule over these people. No, he says, do as I did. You know what they picked up on right away? The son of man did not come to be served, but to serve. When you begin to read through the book of Acts, you know what they're not doing? They're not being these, this big authority in the church. They're not being burdensome on people. They're trying to what? Serve. The church grew through serving. People were attracted to the serving component of these men and women. Not just their message. Jesus, the king of kings, who will come back on the clouds of heaven, did not come to be served, but to serve. That's our king, and he's coming back. And he reminds us there will be wars. There will be rumors of wars. There will be kingdom rising against kingdom. All of these things. It's all giving way to the moment when the son of man finally does come, crushes every kingdom that's ever existed and establishes his kingdom on earth where he rules and reigns. Not from here. I'm sorry, Huntington. Not from Philadelphia. Not from Shanghai. Not from London. From Jerusalem. 
the Son of Man. Why don't we praise him for a moment and honor the one who set the greatest example of sacrifice. He died for us. Our king died for us. That's prophetic. And he gives us hope of what's coming. Why don't we turn to him in prayer and thank him for his glory and honor that he didn't abuse it. Instead, he emptied himself that we might have life.